Hey guys, it's Steve on my phone in Hawaii, where it happens to be turkey season. And it is right now turkey week here at Meat Eater, which means tons of great turkey hunting content, a lot of great offers on turkey gear at TheMeatEater.com, and even a calling contest where I am getting my ass thoroughly kicked. Go find it all at TheMeatEater.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode number 29 the Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. Today, I'm in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and I'm hanging out with Jeff Crane and Andy Treharn from the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Now, you might, you might not know who Jeff and Andy are. Uh, you may never have heard of the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, but hopefully this conversation will change that and let you know how important this group really is. Because CSF is the foundational arm or the go-between between the Sportsman's Caucus and the hunting and fishing world. And the Sportsman's Caucus is important is because it is a 300-member group in Congress that have dedicated themselves to uh, the legislative policies of hunting and fishing and protecting our rights. And so CSF is the go-between. They're the middleman for that conversation. And it is an important conversation. And I think Probably why this was important to me going in here was CSF is not a forward-facing group. They're not Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. They're not Ducks Unlimited. They're not Backcountry Hunters and Angler. They don't do a whole lot of marketing. They don't have members. They don't really have on-the-ground presence. As we know, conservation. But what they do is work for us every day to make sure there's a bipartisan voice for legislation. There's a bipartisan voice for doing the right thing for hunters and anglers. And that is, to me, it's a little bit in the weeds, but it's as important as anything. And what I came out from this conversation with is a gratitude for Jeff, Andy, CSF, and what they do. I want to shake their hand and say, I appreciate you standing up, doing all the hard work, digging down deep, and making sure our government works for us and for what we love. So hopefully this conversation will uh, inspire you. To learn a little bit more about CSF, understand what they do, understand the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, and why they're important, and be knowledgeable about those things. So, without further ado, episode number 29, straight from Capitol Hill. We're recording. Fellas, how's it going? Great. Good. Yeah. Uh, introduce yourselves. We have Andy and Jeff. We're here. I'm here in the. Uh, I'll let you guys describe it. We're here in the Congressional Sports Foundation office. Correct. Heart of the district. Um, Andy, kick it away. Introduce yourself. Sure. Andy Treharn. I'm CSF's Federal Land Policy Director. Uh, and I live uh, just north of Denver in a town called Louisville, Colorado. Awesome. Awesome. Jeff. I'm Jeff Crane. I'm the president of the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Home for me is Annapolis, Maryland, which is about 35 miles east of here. And as you said, Ben, we are two blocks from the United States Capitol, right on Capitol Hill. That's right. That's right. I've spent a lot of time here, grew up in this area, um, spent a lot of time when I was a child as a tourist, but then worked for the NRA and spent a bunch of time down this way when I did that. Um but I always like to start these things because there's no video. Nobody can see where we are. So, Jeff, can you try to – we're in your office just to kind of describe the surroundings. Give us your – use your best prose. Andy, 
feel free to yeah, I'll help chime, I'll let the boss <laughs> take that one, but I'll chime in as needed. So, so my best pros on this is that we like to practice what we preach. Sure. And so uh, being outside hunting and fishing is part of my life. And to have the opportunity to be able to marry that with my work has been just a dream come true. So my office has taxidermy in it. That's right. Uh, it's sitting with a window that looks right out onto the street there. And uh, so here they are. And and um, uh, the, the I suppose the interesting thing is my grand slam of wild turkeys is in here and that's mainly because my wife decided that she's allowing taxidermy at home but she thinks turkeys are ugly and i think turkeys (laughs) are beautiful so they're all here we got we got i'm a big time turkey hunter and i i have not yet achieved the grand slam so we'll have to that could be a whole other podcast here we go talking yeah turkeys but uh, yeah it's nice to uh feel kind of at home with taxidermy in dc yeah probably not every office near the capitol building has that no i would say it's pretty unique so that's for sure there, there's a few of them a few yeah. members up on the hill that they've got they've got a few pieces in their office really yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice to walk in there occasionally and give me is there any specifically you can think of uh, jeff spent some time in uh congressman don young's office and yeah he's got some real good stuff from alaska in there that he can probably describe in detail better than i can yeah you walk into the front of the congressman's office and there's a brown bear rug that's on the wall that he shot and it's a massive bear and then you go into his inner office and there's all kinds of cool stuff from alaska and north america and then he's got african stuff so he's not afraid to wear (laughs) who he is and what he where he his passions are on his sleeve so it always if you feel like you know 14 million hunters out there you know if you just if you just think about hunting, sportsmen not being just hunters, but um, if you just think about hunting, the percentage of the actual population that hunters are is very small. Would you compare that to the percentage of the hunters that the hunters are congressmen or or serving in Congress right now? Is it a very small percentage of uh-huh. folks that actually actively hunt? Uh, you know, well that that's that maybe is the question: is the active hunters or fishermen or those members of Congress that recognize that they have constituents that yep. are actively involved in this because our the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus has grown to be the largest, most active bipartisan caucus on Capitol Hill. There are nearly 300 members in the House and the Senate out of 535 total members of Congress. So um, that's a pretty good number, uh, yeah. to say the least. How many of those guys actually hunt and fish? You know, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't know whether they do. They certainly don't have taxidermy in their office and <laughs> stuff, but we, you know, we get them out to Clay's shoots and, uh, we, we fish with some of the guys and I've definitely seen pictures. We, you know, we do a slideshow with our big dinner every year and ask, ask members to send in pictures and it's great stuff, you know, and them hunting, fishing with kids, grandkids, all that kind of, all the stuff that we hold near and yeah. dear. So well, that's good. Yeah. And I, you know, our, one of our biggest jobs is just to work with them and show them the value in it for, for conservation, their constituents. Um, and then. You know, it's it's a bonus for us if we're actually getting out into the field with them, and yeah, uh, you get to see them in action. And you know, some of them, they're they're the real deal. Oh, yeah. there's, there's a few real deals. Senator Heinrich, I know, is oh, a real absolutely. deal. Absolutely, huge hunter. Yes. Yeah. Huge hunter. He's a DIY public land. Yes, yes, he is. Real deal. Yeah. Um, and it's not that it's necessary for those folks to to actively go and pursue those things, but as a hunter, it'd be nice to know that they're they're there um, because it's it's as you well know, one thing to go go hunting another thing to support it 
you know, I think that's something we struggle with a lot of times, you know, with our public image is that to go do it and to, to be accepting of it and have not experienced it, that's a, that's a pretty big gap. There is, um, yeah. So it's, it's nice to know there's some, some of those there guys are running around. I, and I think some of them, uh, they don't like to talk about it for, for political reasons based on sure. where they might be from. But uh, I can think of a couple examples of folks that you don't hear them talk about it very much, but I know they go out of their way to do it when they're, they're back home and um, you know, they still interact with their constituents that hunt and fish and yeah. um, I get that too. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, staff play a really important role in terms of advising uh, members of Congress and on issues that maybe the member himself or herself doesn't know as well. If you've got somebody on a, it's a trusted member of your staff that does happen to enjoy the outdoors and hunting and fishing and they can lean in. You're probably going to get a good reception out of that too. So we work the staff angle as well as the member sure. angle to try to make sure we're getting folks out. And we do an August recess clay shoot every year and, and that fills up in about less than a day. And we have a big component for first time shooters with, with instructors and if nothing else somebody gets to pick up a shotgun and break a target and dispel some of the hollywood myths about shotguns and what they are and what they do some of them can be semi-auto that's pretty scary yeah Yeah. we even let them shoot semi-auto so (laughs) that's awesome well that's a good a good segue into you know it's pretty evident by the name a lot of people will understand and know the name congressional sportsman's foundation but you guys would admit you're not as front-facing to the community as rmef or Ducks Unlimited. Um, there's no membership drives where you guys are giving away any products or anything like that. But your your function is is as important, if not more important, for you know the day to day life of hunters, legislation, policy, those types of things. So either one of you guys or both, just kind of give a quick rundown of of CSF, what it is, how it runs, um, and you believe its impact. I know that's a, a long answer, but let's start to get into okay, you know how you would explain that to someone who's never heard of CSF. Great. So I'll start and we can cut it up into sound bites so I don't get into a long monotone. But basically, it was founded in 89 to support the then-fledgling Congressional Sportsman's Caucus. Capitol Hill has caucuses, four or five hundred different caucuses, um, you know, some more known than others. And a caucus is nothing more than a bunch of elected officials that share some views on things and want to be educated on it. They were smart enough to realize, even with the staffs that they have on, in their member offices, that having an outside body that could kind of be that that conduit, that link between between the conservation world and the hunting and fishing world and these members of Congress was going to be important. Sure. And it was going to be important to have have it be here in D.C., be you know, in part staffed by people that understand the, the legislative policy, because at the end of the day, our function is to try to affect legislative and, and, and administrative policy, but it's a policy function. And so um, we're very different. We're not membership based. Uh, we're very different in that regard. And so um, that's how we started and it's grown. And Andy can talk more about the expansion into the into the states. But, uh, you know, almost every one of the national uh, sportsmen's hunting conservation, fishing conservation groups are, uh, are partners with us. So we play a, we play a very niche role in trying to help uh, advance things that, that obviously we care about and so do their members. So, Yeah, and about 15 years ago, 
after the, the Congressional Caucus had been up and running for a while, uh, Jeff and, and some other folks that were here before my time uh, realized that a lot of hunting and fishing policy is made at the state level uh, with state game and fish agencies creating the regulations, state legislatures overseeing them. And at that time, there were a handful of states that also had sportsmen's caucuses in their legislatures, but they didn't really have a great way to communicate with one another and uh, see what was working well in one state, uh, not working well in others, uh, weren't identifying threats to hunting and fishing collectively. And so uh, CSF and, and Jeff in particular had the the bright idea to create an umbrella organization uh, for those state caucuses. And then uh, we took that and ran with it. And since then, we've been trying to encourage other states to establish sportsmen's caucuses that are bipartisan, uh, both chambers of a legislature. And then uh, we've been real successful with that. Uh, We've got them in 48 states now. Wow. Um, And we put on a conference every fall uh, where we try to bring them all together and have uh, policy presentations, uh, give them an opportunity to talk about what's going on in their respective states, communicate with one another. Uh, And we've seen a lot of successful policy initiatives uh, come out of that effort where a legislator from one state will be talking to uh, someone from another state and say, oh, that's a really good idea. And we don't have that in my state. So I'm going to bring it back and start talking to my folks and see if there's uh, a way that we can make this work for for my state, and, and you guys work with the governors as well. We do. We have a, a governor sportsman's caucus. Uh, same thing, uh, bipartisan deal. Uh, we've got thirty five members yeah. uh, all over the country, and um, you know we try to serve as a, a resource for them in the same way. Uh, they're a little harder to get in one place and at <laughs> one time uh, than than state legislators, but um, you know we can we can play that role as well. If we get sure. a phone call from one of their staff members and uh, they'll call us with questions and say, Hey, you know, have any other States looked at this and what was their experience? And um, you know, have there been any lessons learned? You know, could they do it better? And uh, we can uh, either give them that information or help them track it down sure. through our relationships. Well, I imagine that to both you guys, the, you know, the term bipartisan is important in this function. You know, there is, you know, we can go through this in, some detail or bat, bat this idea around, but I think that there's the traditional idea that the this, this sportsman's community leans heavily Republican, and there's a bit of a movement in Andy's part of the world that some hunting and fishing organizations are starting to look a little bit more blue in, in the way that they act and function um, and concern to public lands and things like that. Is there, you know, Jeff, in your experience, has there been a change in in those forces a little bit right to left, how they view hunting, how they view the environment, how all that spins up into, into the actual legislation and policy. Yeah, there absolutely has. And, and even going probably a little further back in history, but you know, the, the, the Southern then bull weevil Democrats, then the blue dogs and, and whatnot, um, they they had they had a little bit more connection. I think it has to do really a lot with geographics. Um, you know, uh, if if you're from a district that's urban suburban, your connection maybe is less to the outdoors and that 
sportsman's way of life, whereas you represent a more rural district, you might be more inclined. And so I think as you looked at the map, the Republicans tend to to control more of those those districts. And so that's sure. why this perception that it that it leans, you know, further to the Republican side and they they have it. But you know, um, we've got tremendous champions on on both sides of the aisle here that that really care about this. And you know, when's the last time you went hunting and you got introduced to somebody and you asked them whether they were yeah. a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> I don't think that ever. Be pretty awkward. It's real awkward. It just doesn't come up, you know. And and uh, um, that's not the that's not the binding factor on this. It's the it's the passion for the outdoors. It's the the love of nature. It's this responsibility to, to, to be conservation minded and that, that crosses party lines and crosses gender, you know? And so, um, that's the beauty about working on this, but yeah, we could, you know, more balance is always good in this town because, sure. uh, you get labeled as being partisan on one thing, then it makes it harder to convince the other side that your, your goals and objectives are altruistic and are about conservation and getting kids outside and all the stuff we know about. So, yeah. Yeah. I I would add to that, you know, you referenced being in the West and I, I think there is some change going on demographically in that part of the, the country as well. That's driving some of that. And you know, from speaking in terms of my day-to-day job and talking with folks, it's, it's really more about when you sit down with a policymaker and you try to talk to them, whether they're on the right or the left. And it's more about whether they'll have a a real conversation with you and uh, try to understand where you're coming from and the perspective, whether that's Republicans on public lands issues or Democrats on firearms issues or, or both. And uh, as long as there are folks that are out there that are willing to have a conversation and, and work with you in a pragmatic way, I think that's what's most important rather than um, some sort of label you, you put on, on folks. Yeah, no, we always talk about, on this podcast, you know, pro nuance, like there are, as you, you brought up some very, just in, in describing how to have a conversation, you brought up some pretty polarizing issues, guns, public lands, things that are immediately put up the walls of I'm this team, you're that team. I think that's, especially in, you know, we found ourselves in a situation, Jeff, you surely know this, that a lot of our pursuits are complicated. They go across, you know, age demographics they go across different land uses they go across a lot of different things and for us to say i'm pro this i'm anti this without as a group as sportsmen understanding what that really means to be pro something and anti something else i think that's important have you found you know in your many years of doing this and i know even prior to this you were a ph in africa is that correct right and there's a lot of other things that you did you know coming up before you were in the chair you are now i mean how have you found that to be uh, yeah, I think I think being able to have the dialogue first of all, um, convincing people it's okay to to not have to be one hundred percent in lockstep agreement with one another. We probably would find the three of us may not agree on every single thing out there, and just in our conservation world, just from a different perspective, and being able then to try to 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 map that course through through the political process is what you know that's what we we specialize in doing and you know sometimes that's successful and in in particular in federal politics a lot of times it isn't um there's a lot of conflicting things that go on there's a lot of pressures that go on you can be 
dead right on on the policy <laughs> and still never get it done um, because it gets overtaken by either partisan politics or something else suddenly flares up and and you know we're not the we're not the number one thing if you look in polls as to what Americans by and large are concerned about economy jobs threat on terror, yeah, 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 it's the stuff that's first and foremost for everybody's life. And so we're down the ladder to begin with. So that art of trying to find that deal and find their way through on the stuff is, is part of what, you know, part of what makes this exciting and some yeah. days pretty dang frustrating. <laughs> so. no, and I, I think you, you mentioned there's 14 million or so hunters and anglers out there. And I, I think part of the reason that we have been in, in the long term, pretty successful is that that nuance and pragmatism where uh, when big stuff comes up, you know, I think by nature, we're a pretty pragmatic group and we can come together and uh, go have those nuanced conversations with folks. And um, most of the time it turns out okay for us in, in the big picture. Yeah. Do either of you guys have a specific example that either recent or just something that was yeah, climactic for this organization that was pivotal to hunters and anglers and it was a was a you know i would say just a turnkey moment for hey we're going to treat this issue this way and he, he, here's who's on board here's who isn't on board because i'm sure there's a lot you know public lands is the current trendy thing to talk about but that wasn't always you know top of mind for every hunter every angler out there yeah i i can think of a couple um you know we this goes back a couple years now but um we hadn't had a duck stamp increase in a real long time. And, uh, that, that was something that was really important. Uh, but the political environment, uh, in Congress, um, not, not wholesale, but just because of a few louder voices that had some control over the process made that probably difficult, uh, more difficult than it needed to be. Um, and, you know, didn't go once if I remember correctly, right. once or twice. And, yep. Uh, potentially brought down some other policy goals with it. And um, let me say, is that just a tax? Like generally we don't want to increase taxes. We don't give it, we don't give a shit what it is. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much we, it. Yeah. A, even, so, even though we were trying to explain to them, we are the people that are going to pay it. <laughs> You're going to We want yeah. it. We I are use, asking you for, to tax me more. Yeah. And yet they would still say no. I always use that as an example when I'm talking about, so maybe this doesn't help my, when I'm talking to a non hunter about, you know, the I, I believe you guys coined the American System of Conservation Funding. Right. Talking to him about that, I'm talking to him about there's this one tax, right? It's about ducks, and we go to it's like the the only you know nobody's arguing. Give us the tax, right? We came up with it. We want it. Let's keep let's keep raising yeah. as much as we need to raise, it. right? Uh, so I always use that specific example to say you've got a willing constituency that's willing to pay, and it's almost ingrained in what we do to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Know? So there's an example of. Partisan politics saying like, well, we just can't. We told, we promised we wouldn't raise them. Right. Yeah, and then and then they came back the next Congress and got it done. Um, you know, and there's examples at the state level too. Like where I live in Colorado, we hadn't had a hunting or fishing license fee increase in since 2005 until this year. Wow. And you know that that money is just not going as far as it once did. I mean, that's just math. And uh, um, you know. 20, 2017 legislative session, we had bipartisan legislators that work with the sportsman's community bring a bill forward. And I still can't tell you why that didn't pass that year and pass this year. 
Um, but uh, it's it's one of those things where there's some pragmatism involved and uh, a need to really go and educate people about who are paying these fees and why they don't mind paying more uh, if if they believe in what it's supporting. Yeah, that's a good segue to to that term, American System of Conservation Funding. So I was writing an article recently about Pittman Robertson. Your colleague Phil Hoon introduced me to this concept, and I was like, "Well, okay, we should, you know, just like the North American model." wildlife conservation which wasn't something coined like a lot of people think at the turn of the century it was coined in the 80s right um i think these are terms that can help us not other important terms because they can help us understand what's going on but also it's inclusive of everything that's actually happening so it's not just pitman robertson it's not just license fees it's inclusive of everything so um jeff can you talk about how much is that a part of your job now to to you know to fight so these things maintain and and educate people on their legacy and, and explain that the AC ASCF and what that means uh, for every hunter and angler. Okay. That's a lot of, that's a big one. I got, I got it all over the place. Listen, what you'll understand is that I ask questions that are like eight (laughs) long. And if we get to the first two, that's fine. The other six we'll get to. Let's go. Cause I think, you know, I'm hoping most of your listeners probably are familiar with, with, Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson and those excise taxes on guns, ammo, fishing tackle, uh, whatnot, uh, as being dedicated funding. So then you, you, you add on top of that, the license fees and permits and things like that. And, and it turns into the biggest funding source for most of the state fish and wildlife agencies around the country. And that is a very unique model to the United States of America and, and a hugely successful model. And, and that's something that we as sportsmen and women need to be proud of. Um, not just because we're, we're, we're carrying the the freight in terms of, of finances, but because of that just as further indicates our passion for, for wildlife and it's game and non-game species, as we all know, that benefit from good habitat conservation, from clean water, um, from things like this. So this system is extremely important and yeah, we do talk about it. I don't, you know, and, and I know Andy and, and some of the other guys on our state-based, um, efforts are, are constantly watching because inevitably some, somebody comes up with the idea of diverting those funds away and at the state level to cover some other budget shortfall. And fortunately the folks that drafted that legislation were smart enough to think and putting safeguards in there that if you do that, then, you know, you're going to sacrifice all that funding. And, but we have to check those states back on occasion because somebody, you know, like I say, somebody's figuring, ah, there's a pool of money that we don't, we don't really (laughs) care about turkeys. We, we care more about schools, you know, let's divert it over here. So we are watching it. Um, from that side of things, uh, we're working on other supplemental things to try to take some of the, the burden off. The state agencies have got a tremendous amount of responsibility and, and um, you know, that pool of money isn't going as far as, as it used to. And we got to be watching for and we're working on some other things that we can get into to, to try to look at sure. some of the other issues and Funding is always important. Unfortunately, it always comes down to, to dollars to support stuff. <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course. Well, it's, a, it's a big part of our education mission, too. I mean, a lot of these state legislators were are coming from a background of being insurance agents or teachers or, you know, they're, they're busy, normal people. Uh, and if they have never hunted or sometimes even if they have, they might not 
know where the money comes from or oh, yeah. right. uh, that there are many state agencies out there that receive no general fund tax revenue um, that don't know that there's a 10 or 11% tax on firearms or ammunition or fishing equipment that supports their state agency that issues their hunting license. And so we do a lot of educational programming on that front too. And it's everything from the basics to uh, when they try to draft legislation to give away free licenses to some niche constituency, um, which, you know, maybe they deserve, we don't know, but we want them to have the information that uh, if they're not charging uh, what it costs to issue that license, they're losing federal funding from yeah. the excise taxes. Right. Yeah, and I think there's isn't there a statute that says they don't spend it spend that money on um, conservation in the first was it two years? Right, uh, it's gone. Right, take yeah. it, which right. is which is a huge part of the Pittman Robertson Dingle Johnson funds. Hey everybody, listen up! I got I got mega huge news. Meat Eater Live is heading back out on the road. That's right. Join me and the crew. Clay Newcomb, Cal, Yanni, Spencer's going to be there. Phil the Engineer is going to be there. Meet it or live, head it back out. Now, when you get every ticket, okay, every ticket you buy, you get a signed copy of our new Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook. This tour is celebrating the release of the book. Buy a ticket, get a signed copy, Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, Wild Game Recipes for the Grill, Smoker, Camp Stove, and Camp Fire, which I'll point out is a $38 value. Here's where we're going to go. April 23rd, the Mesa Art Center in Mesa, Arizona. April 24, the Balboa Theater in San Diego. April 25, the Grove in Anaheim, California. April 27, the Crest Theater in Sacramento. April 29, the Union in Salt Lake City. April 30, the Egyptian in Boise. May 1, the Wilma Theater in Missoula. May 2, the Bing Crosby Theater in Spokane, Washington. May 4, Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. And May 5, the last day of the tour, Pantages Theater in Tacoma, Washington. For tickets and more information, visit the events page at TheMeatEater.com. Hope to see you at the show. And so that's... You guys correctly. And, and the states have to match. Yeah. It's a matching yeah, it's a match. thing. A lot of times they use the license dollars, but nonetheless, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty incentive driven yeah. program when it really comes right down to well, it. Well, somebody long time ago was very you know yes. Franklin D. Roosevelt and the folks back in the thirties when they had that conservation conference came up with right. these these programs were pretty smart. Really? I mean you smart. think yeah. for it to be eighty years plus for that single program. And he's talking about license fees and um, Pittman-Robertson funds and Dingle-Johnson funds, 60%, 70%. I'm, I'm not sure what the number is, but it's a, you know, anywhere from, I've seen anywhere from 40 to 60% of state funding for conservation yeah. is coming from, and wildlife management is coming from yeah, that absolutely. system. No, I th- and I think even even more important is that the, that assent legislation that says the states can't divert the hunting and fishing license money that they collect themselves protects the federal money. So it all yeah. works together. And, right. you know, so we've gone since the 1930s, essentially, uh, without having any significant diversion of hunting license revenue away from conservation, which I, I, I can't think of another program like it. They're, they may be out there, but it's, yeah. it is pretty unique. When I, one of the frustrating things about that program is that I, you know, I grew up in this, I grew up in Western Maryland 
and my dad hunted and my whole family hunted. I'm sure you guys had some similar experiences. Nobody, they didn't sit you down the first day you bought a license. Hey, guess, guess what? This is what, it's a beautiful thing. It's to be celebrated. It's part of our heritage. This is why you get to go hunting in the, the, the greater sense of the word. I mean, it's a long story, but the big part of it is user pays public benefits. That's a huge part of it. And that's not a part of the storyline. Every young hunter gets to hear. Um, I hope they're changing that. I hope yeah, so. I Hopefully this conversation <laughs> helps to change that. But I think it's such, when we talk about it in terms of Capitol Hill, it's such an impactful piece of legislation. And I'm sure Jeff, you could speak to how much legislation comes and goes. Um, and uh, you know, the building blocks of our conservation movement are still here 80 years later. Yeah. Um, that's pretty unique. Yep. It's gotta be. Yeah. And there have been attempts to, to change it. Uh, in particular, there have been attempts to change Pittman Robertson and redirect some of that funding towards things like victims of gun violence and things like that. And so, you know, we've had to, that's, that's been politically difficult to stand into that and say, no, this is not what this money is for. And we got to protect the integrity of this kind of stuff. And, and so, um, yeah, it's a, it, there, there's a constant need to be vigilant and, and keep an eye out because people are trying to do things that, um, don't necessarily sure. fit in with what we think. So I, I haven't heard a whole lot of solutions for how to replace that funding if it, no. if it goes away no. when people come up with bad ideas right. either. Yeah. Well, and then you talk about the number of hunters on the decline and there is a need for at some level to have a solution. Yeah. Well, and I, I think there's a difference between replacing it and supplementing Supplement, it. Right. And um, Jeff alluded to it a little bit earlier and, you know, there are some things going on at both the, the state and federal level on that front. And um, i I think the sportsman's community, generally speaking, is, um, I think even since I've been here for seven or eight years, the there's been a change in, in philosophy and an openness to looking at some of those things and trying to identify some solutions because that conservation ethic is, is still very strong uh, and important to a lot of people. Yeah. You guys have to do a lot. Of, have you done a lot to this point with the Land and Water Conservation Fund? Oh yeah, we've been involved in that for a long time. Uh, uh, one of the things that that program wise is the making public lands public component of that, mm-hmm. um, which was to direct a, a certain amount, one point five percent or ten million dollars, whichever is the is the greater, um, to go to these projects where there are literally landlocked uh, pieces of, of access points to federal public lands, sure. willing seller, willing participant that'll put a right-of-way easement. And those don't typically score in the scheme of things when they're when they're measuring projects under LWCF. So we worked with the coalition, with, with the environmental community to talk about, you know, incorporating this idea for us, it's really access for, for hunting and fishing, but recreational access, you know, we're all concerned about kids not getting outside. And one of the issues becomes, you know, if you've got federal public lands that you can't get to, um, that's a problem. So we're trying to address that. That is in the current, uh, authorization language. Actually, they, the, the resources committee, when they passed the bill last week, increased it to 3% and $20 million. So that was a, that was a win right there yeah. in terms of, you know, that ability. Cause there's a lot of acreage, especially in the West that, um, is inaccessible and, you know, we need, 
well, all of us know that more access is going to be better for, yeah. for getting people out there. Can you give me just, just a quick, I think people that we were talking about earlier, as these things will come trendy, I think there's a lot of people in the hunting industry that know now what the Land and Water Conservation Fund is that maybe years past would have, would have laughed off the need to even know what it was, which is a, is a great thing. But can you give everybody that doesn't know just a really quick rundown of that program? All right, I'll I'll start and then Andy can correct me when when I when I get. <laughs> We've off talked base. about it on this podcast. Yeah, no, a lot, I know. So I I know yeah, know. so you know, it started in the started in the '60s, and so I mean, it's been around for a long time. And and again, the idea was well, there were uh, in particular there were offshore oil and gas royalties um, on federal federal waters, and the idea was to be able to redirect some of those royalties back to conservation through what they created is the land and water conservation fund. And so um, the program has been around again for a long time, you know, 50, 50 odd, 50 plus years. And, and uh, um, I'm just delighted that, that there are some folks that are willing to listen to, to the idea that, you know, it's not, it's not, sacrilege to look at a 60 year 50 year old program and say is there ways to tweak this to make it you know more more applicable for the 21st century than the middle of the 20th century and and so um, we're supportive of the concept the program we just appreciate the fact that uh, we're able to work with partners to include some access specific language in there and andy i don't know if you want to add anything yeah i I think that was a good summary um you know, one of the, the challenges with that program as a whole that has been around since the, the mid-60s and, you know, it was coming out of the, the Eisenhower years, they created a, you know, a blue ribbon task force to look at outdoor recreation in America. It was post-World War II. Uh, the interstate highway system was new and they realized that there was going to be a growing demand for recreation. And so those folks had a lot of... Um, forethought and um that that was a very good thing Mm -hmm. uh but i think one thing that gets lost in a lot of the the publicity and the advocacy around lwcf is that it's it's really only been fully funded one time in its history and you know going back to that pragmatic viewpoint of trying to get positive things done for the sportsman's community constituency i look at that and say you know, are there opportunities to do this in a different way that is either uh, more attractive to appropriators or can get us over the finish line to full and permanent funding so that it doesn't have to go through the appropriations process every single year? And, you know, unfortunately, because it has become somewhat politicized in, in some ways, I think it, it can make it more difficult to have those conversations um, because people become more rigid and, and people in the advocacy community sure. become more rigid and then by extension, members of Congress become more rigid um, in terms of their flexibility to look at things in a, in a pragmatic way and, and see, hey, how, are there some changes that we could, we could make that, you know, Maybe we up this from 900 million to 1.5 in exchange for making some modifications or allowing some, uh, you know, other folks to have a, a vested stake in this. And uh, that that's a difficult message to deliver up there because everybody retreats to their corners and says either yeah. this is great or this is not great. I imagine that rigidity comes from 
fact that there's oil and gas involved and I think that's environmental issues involved. Like yeah. The, those kind of things are coming together well, in, with this program. You, you, there is. And you look at, you know, back to your point about Pittman Robertson and promoting that and educating people about it. You know, I will often wonder if, if we put as much money into promoting Pittman Robertson um, as certain interests put into promoting LWCF, um, would it become more of the sacred cow that LWCF has become? And, um, you know, I, I think LWCF has, has done things that benefited me personally. Sure. You know, I mean, Absolutely. some yeah. of that, some of that access I, I use, all the time. I can think of two or three places. Yeah, yeah. And, and I could think of a playground in Bozeman, Montana where yeah. my kid was playing there you go. that I looked at the sign and it said, thanks to the Land of Water yeah. Conservation Fund. Absolutely. Thought, Seriously? Yeah. Like, are, you know, there's there's just, it's such an entangled thing to understand. Yeah. And, and it's, back to the nuance, it's also difficult even when, even when the money's there and it's been appropriated, getting to the, to the agencies and, and talking with them on how they spend it. And, um, you know, our part of our job is to make sure that they're spending at least a good chunk of it in ways that benefit hunters and anglers. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that is a very, very complicated question. And, you know, there are landowners involved and willing, uh, real estate transactions and all these different layers to it that, that make it a, um, a very important, but also very challenging issue to deal with uh, on a year-to-year basis yeah that's a good the good point you make back to the point about you know Pippin robertson and that system of funding not getting shined up and put out there to the public as much you know and it feels we had a, a public lands roundtable on the podcast not long ago and i was very much saying like it's easy to to follow the trend right it's easy to hashtag something or say you're all about something without really understanding what's going on i think there's huge parts of that that mirror in politics some something becomes trendy something becomes the thing to do at that moment something that becomes things that makes you popular inside the halls of congress and outside you go do it without really understanding while leaving behind or or running right over top of a very important system in this case pippin robertson it's crazy well politics is a popularity (laughs) contest right that it is (laughs) that it is well it's good i mean i know it's looking good that that the LWCF may get funded in perpetuity. I think that would. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, there there's a lot going on on that front with the the deadline coming up at the end of the month, and yeah, and uh, I, I'm personally not worried about. I mean, I suppose I shouldn't say I'm not worried about it, but but, but you know, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna pass some short term continuing yeah. resolution to keep the government floating along uh, until after the elections. Um, the the big deadline is to get this thing passed into law before the end of this. Congress adjourns in December because if you don't, you got to start all over again with a new Congress. Nobody knows what that new Congress is going to look like, but sure. you know, there's a lot of work that's been done to get this year after year back up to this point. And we got to we got a you know a few years of, of authorization for it the last time, and now it's time to see if you can't you know drive it home. And as Andy said, see if we can get this done. And you know the the brass ring is to get it done with mandatory, permanently authorized funding. funding. And you know I I still think it's a win if you get it permanently authorized, even if we have to go back to the appropriators because you can come fix that later. You know to go to zero and let. Yeah, let the perfect up, yeah. be, be the perfect, be the enemy of the good. 
again, I'm probably I'm, I'm out on the limb where guys are going to be throwing rocks at me, you know, for <laughs> saying these things. But I, you have to be pragmatic in this job up here. And there are times when it's not popular to say, you know, we got to cut we got to cut and run with this. We did that with gray wolves and in Wyoming and Montana, the deal just wasn't there to do, you know, to, I mean, in, in Montana and Idaho, the deal wasn't there at the time for, for, for Wyoming, let alone the great lakes. And, you know, it was not popular to say we're going to cut, we're going to encourage cutting the deal and taking the win for, for Montana and Idaho, just to, just to break the log jam and demonstrate we, we have the backbone to say, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. These things need to be managed by professional wildlife managers, not by, not by the media and the hype in Congress. And so, um, those are sometimes the issues that, that, that we have to, we have to pick aside and, you know, it's not always easy. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's not a lot, but there's a few I can think of. I'm sure you guys could uh, talk circles around me on a lot of these issues, but things pop up, right? New Jersey black bears. Yeah. Most yeah. recent thing. <laughs> right. These things just pop up. Not out of nowhere. The New Jersey black bear thing has been been circling around. So give me a quick, I think that's just a good example of these kind of issues that you're talking about that pop up. And, you know, yeah, this one's been swirling for a while, but. Well, there's that one. Well, then there's good stuff too. I mean, when, when Flitfa came up earlier this year, uh, when they passed the omnibus spending package, yeah. uh, I didn't anticipate that we were going to have the opportunity to do something uh, that good as part of it. And, you know, some of our friends in the uh, land trust community came to us and said, you know, Chairman Bishop is thinking about uh, marking up a, a Federal Land Transaction Facilitation Act bill uh, that had been expired since 2011. And uh, we, the acronym is FLITFA. And it sounds kind of scary because it says... <laughs> Land federal land transaction. Yeah, I was so, like, "What? Yeah, tell me and more." So, uh, it it does sound kind of scary, but it's actually a, a pretty solid program where uh, BLM can go out and identify part of their yes. regular yep. planning process these isolated parcels or unusable parcels without a lot of value to the public, and they can sell them. And rather than that money just going into the treasury, uh, it goes into something called the federal land disposal account, which they can pool money and use it to buy uh, better lands, better lands. Uh, you know, or landlocked parcels or checker, consolidate checkerboard, things like that. And, uh, and we said, yeah, well, we'd be happy to help you uh, with getting this program reauthorized. Yeah. But, you know, we, we have some language you'd like you to consider. And uh, it was specifically to be able to spend a portion of that money on landlocked parcels that have hunting and fishing access. And, uh, they said, okay, because I assume because they thought it would be helpful in uh, getting it over the finish line. But, you know, that was one of those things that we've been working on it for a while, but just this small window of opportunity, something came up, uh, we were ready, we could get it in there. And, uh, that flew through. I mean, that was yep. a three week process of getting, yeah. some more money for landlocked parcels in perpetuity. And that's a permanent authorization. So. Yeah. I think I, I can think of more, as many wins as, as, as there are, you know, trouble spots at this point. I can think of the fire borrowing that was in that yeah. same ominous package. Yeah, it was as in one, there too. As another part of like, whoa, cool. Yeah. Yep. Solve that problem. Yep. Yeah. No, um, it comes together when, you know, when they have to fund the entire federal government, there's <laughs> sometimes some, some opportunities that aren't always there. Yeah. So there's, there's good and bad. I've tried to talk about that fire barn because it's just a good example of something you'll never hear about. Right. You'll yeah. never hear about, but that's something that, 
you know, when you talk about, is there enough money to manage these federal lands? Well, if you're stealing it for, for putting out fires, fire suppression, fire suppression, um, yeah, it's not as much. Right. You can't just go ask for more. Right. Uh, I guess right. sports teams you could, but they're not going to. Absolutely. Um, so those are small wins that can be celebrated as much as the fights. I think in, in our on our politics and our advocate, you know, being advocates, we just want to focus on the fight. We gotta fight that, we gotta whack that mole down, we gotta whack that mole down, whack that one down. But sometimes, you know, the ominous bill passes and we've got a couple of wins to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And some of that, some of that gets a little policy wonkish, and mm-hmm. you know that's that's part of the challenge. Is why is that important? You know why why is fire fire borrowing important? Well, you know as you said, if you can't be if you're having to take money from inside the forest service and reprogram it for fire suppression because you're, the west is burning up, well, you're not being able to do the proactive things for trails and access yep. points for parking areas for management of streams and other habitat and things that i mean that becomes a back to the dollars and cents it becomes where can i put my where do i put my money and you can't just let it burn you know because yeah. people people see that you know yeah. and <laughs> that so, hits the news yeah <laughs> so you know i mean that that becomes those those little wins sometimes are are a lot bigger than just a little win you know yeah. i can think of one and this is now going back uh, a long time ago in 2005 when um, the highway bill was being reauthorized, and part of the highway bill is uh, excise tax on motorboat and small engine fuel that goes into the Dingle Johnson account. Um, and in terms of for for bumping up that amount, and we were only getting fourteen point nine percent. We as a sportsman's community out of the eighteen point three cents, so there was about a nickel in there that wasn't coming back into was just going into the highway fund and we yeah. successfully argued and got that money to come in there and since that time it's over a billion dollars uh, of additional funding for for uh, fisheries conservation and habitat for boat ramps for boat safety you know i mean that's real money at a looking at a little nickel and saying we're missing that on and getting our fair share of this thing. And that was not what it was intended. And we were able to get that back. That was a very boring little fight <laughs> over a nickel. And yet at the same time, the, 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 the net impact of that thing has been yeah. dramatic. You yeah. Know? When you put it in those terms, I think people are probably happy to have you guys around. Yeah. Right. I am. And I think that it's those things, right. Being able to, it's, it's, erroneous at some level to expect every sportsman to understand all this stuff you know you still have the time of the day no they'd rather be sitting in a duck blind of course sure and so i think you know as part of this conversation is understanding that there's guys like out there like yourselves that are handling it taking care of it working on their behalf i think that's important um as much as anything with this policy stuff really it bubbles up all the time and it bubbles up to a point where they hear about it like the black bears you don't hear about it until it's a it's a full on fist fight. Yep. Yeah. Um, but it'd be nice to cut that off before it before it's people with signs, you know, would protesting the yeah. black bear. Hunt. Yeah. No. And and you know we do again we do some of that stuff, but and we do successfully cut it off before it gets there. Unfortunately, the you know the ones that do show up like the black bear hunt, you know, they make instant instant 
national media stuff yeah. because people have a wrong perception about what a bear is and then then it just that just inflames it and by then then the game Gone. gets pretty dang yeah. hard for us at yeah. that point without a change in in the administration up there well yeah and you've been so let's hit that real quick so i'm just assuming everyone knows can you give me a, a quick rundown of the most recent legislation passed in, in new jersey or the most least recent ban Air right. So it wasn't, and again, I'll let Andy, if I'm, if I go off, I don't think it was legislation. I think it was a decision made by the now governor uh, and his department up there to say that they were going to suspend the bear hunt and definitely, and basically stop it. And yeah. that's what's happened. And, you know, all of us know that, that management is done really well and it's regulated and hunting plays a critical role in that component of this thing. And the bear hunt has been very successful in New Jersey and cause New Jersey has a lot of black bears. And, and so, um, it's been a good tool. It's been working well. Um, the antis obviously got into somebody's ear or his ear and whispered enough and got enough traction on this thing that, that they decided, you know, against the, against the, direction of their fish and game agencies or DNR or whatever it's called in New Jersey to go ahead and, and implement this ban. And, you know, that's, that's where politics can come in and in, in a bad way, you know? And so unfortunately, as I said, maybe, you know, hopefully it isn't going to mean something bad happens to somebody up there that's going to yeah. trigger something. Um, but it's going to take something, you know, beyond rational common sense, I think, to try to put this back on track. And I think, you know, I'm afraid it's gone for this fall hunting season. Yeah. Sounds like it is. I, you feel like that's a slippery slope there. I mean, it, I'm always wary of the slippery slope argument. Like don't make any changes or it's all going to go. Um, do you feel like the, the bear hunting specifically we've seen in British Columbia and now you see it in New Jersey where people, for whatever reason, bears are a, t- yeah, a tipping point for where hunting lives and doesn't live and what's appropriate and what's not. Do you feel like, this recent set of bear related bands hunting bands are a slippery slope or if if we allow it to continue or if it does continue outside of our control next thing we know they're banning deer hunts and they're banning coyote hunts and they're banning all things like that well i i would say make no mistake that the same people who want to ban the bear hunt want to ban deer hunts oh too. for sure and, yeah uh w- whether it's a slippery slippery slope i don't know i mean we've had We've had this stuff going on. Um, you know, we lost spring bear hunting in Colorado in 1992. And um, we know, opened it, black bear yeah. hunting in the state of Maryland and yep. yeah, eight or nine or 10 uh, years ago, been, something like I've that. Applying for been, those tags for like six years. Yeah. Jeff, open it up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's increasing in, you yeah. know, the number yeah. of bears that they're taking. So there are, there are some wins that go along with, with the yeah. losses. And, Absolutely. You know, and there's, you know, the, the really screwed up thing about the New Jersey situation is that I believe that executive order that the governor signed directed his uh, state agency director to ban bear hunting on the state game lands. And the ironic thing about that is all of those properties were acquired by the state of New Jersey using Federal. Pittman-Robertson yeah. money right. that was produced by hunters and shooters. Yeah. and. So, you know, I, I think there, there's a philosophical and a practical problem there. Um, but, you know, there's, yeah, there's so many problems with the, the concept. I mean, we, since we lost the bear hunt in 92 in Colorado, um, you know, we've got 
We've got way more bears, and a lot of those bears are dying anyway from vehicle collisions or because they're getting into somebody's trash in Steamboat or Aspen or Durango. And we've we've got overtaxed uh, state Fish and Wildlife Agency employees. You know, we had one summer where they were spending, I think the statistic was just in one area between Glenwood Springs and Aspen, where a lot of those bear problems exist. 40,000 man hours just responding to problem bears. And, you know, I don't think there's anyone that is reasonable that thinks that our state Fish and Wildlife Agency employees' time is best spent responding to oh, yeah. a, an old lady that says she's got a bear opening her trash can in her backyard. Yeah, know? I mean, go to go to California Mountain Lions. There you go. Yeah. Well, Same idea. Yeah. Yep. Or yeah. Yeah, any other thing. 65% of those cats have household pets yeah. in their in their stomach when right. we necropsy them after right. the state has to go in and kill them because they've got in trouble. Hey everybody, listen up. I got I got mega huge news. Meat Eater Live is heading back out on the road. That's right. Join me and the crew, Clay Newcomb, Cal, Yanni, Spencer's gonna be there. Phil the engineer is gonna be there. Meat Eater Live headed back out. Now, when you get every ticket, okay, every ticket you buy, you get a signed copy of our new Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook. This tour is celebrating the release of the book. Buy a ticket, get a signed copy, Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, Wild Game Recipes for the Grill, Smoker, Camp Stove, and Camp Fire, which I'll point out is a $38 value. Here's where we're going to go. April 23rd, the Mesa Art Center in Mesa, Arizona. April 24th, the Balboa Theater in San Diego. April 25th, the Grove in Anaheim, California. April 27th, the Crest Theater in Sacramento. April 29, The Union in Salt Lake City. April 30, The Egyptian in Boise. May 1, The Wilma Theater in Missoula. May 2, The Bing Crosby Theater in Spokane, Washington. May 4, Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. And May 5, the last day of the tour, Pantages Theater in Tacoma, Washington. For tickets and more information, visit the events page at the Meat Eater. Dot com. Hope to see you at the show. Yeah, I mean, it's a, if you was if you were to stack up, uh, I'm always at the point like hunters aren't always right. Like we're not always a we're not always educated enough. You just just a regular person. Just, I don't know to, about you, man. But. <laughs> Andy's always right. That's why we've added him to the podcast because <laughs> Jeff and I we don't no, know. No, Andy, no. I'm, Colorado, I'll tell you why. I'm not always versus right. Maryland. Guys, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maryland guys, yeah, pragmatic, pragmatic, no, know it alls out west. Um, that's why you're moving to Montana. That's right. I'm getting to know more and more just as I think about that. But I think, yeah, if you were to stack up the hypocrisies in the animal rights community, that wouldn't take long. It'd be pretty high stack. Um, I think there, you know, like you said, there's, there's, there's just so rooted in success what's happened in the hunting space and, and fishing space too. These conservation successes, you could stack them up as high as the hypocrisies on the animal rights side. And say, look, you know, if you're an animal, you're listed on the Endangered Species Act on the ESA that if you, it should be a victory to get delisted and hunted again. If you were to look at the whole of the species, if you look at this, you know, in the case of Wyoming's grizzly bear hunt, if you were to look at just those 22 grizzlies that are going to get killed, okay, yeah. But if you look at the whole of the population, it's, it's a win. It's a victory to absolutely opened up, delisted and hunted again. And that's. Every uh, every species out there that's a huntable game species, most of them were 
were saved and and brought to bear by these policies. Yeah, most of them never ended up on the endangered species list. I That's mean, right. That, right. You look at you look at that list. You don't see a lot of game species on there, and I I think there's something to be learned there. Yeah. I, I wish more people would pay attention to that part of it. Um, but I, and I think part of the sage grouse stuff is because there are people that yeah. are are committed to that because they enjoyed hunting them. Yeah. What are you know we get we can get really deep down this rabbit hole, but I would I'd love to just go over in some detail here in the last part of the podcast, you know what you guys are working on right now um, that maybe maybe is getting publicity, maybe it's not something that you guys feel is very important to um, the caucus and to the foundation and to, to to what you're working on. You know, I, I would imagine that like the main tenets that most hunters hear about are like farm bill. Uh, anything public lands related seems to be uh, in their ear and anything firearms related seems to be in their ear. But I'm, I'm sure there's many, many, many other things that even farm bills seems to be something that used to be uh, on the tip of every hunter's tongue, but not so much anymore. So is there anything, I know it's a broad again question, but anything on there that you guys are pounding on really hard that, that folks need to know about? Yeah, we've, we've got uh, a couple things moving in the last week or two. Um, one is a, a bill called the Modernizing Pittman-Robertson for Tomorrow's Needs Act. And I like how you guys with the act names are always, yeah, yeah, it's, it's impossible nice. to remember. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- that's, that's also by design. We make it so complicated <laughs> that nobody can, re- and the acronyms are yeah, so the, bad. Yeah, acronyms never, are horrible. Yeah, you oh, can't yeah. ever keep up with them. Uh, but that one would provide the states a little more flexibility uh, on how they use their Pittman-Robertson allocations uh, so that they can support some uh, re- re- recruitment, retention, and reactivation. R3. There's Three another R's. one. Yeah, there's yeah. another one for you. Alliteration. Um, I always like that. Yeah, Works. but uh, they're, they're somewhat restricted on how they can use that money uh, as they should be. But uh, I think there's a, a growing recognition that uh, some of the declines in hunting numbers are a threat to the funding model. We've already talked about earlier today. And uh, there are some states that want to have some additional flexibility to use that money to recruit, uh, retain, and reactivate new hunters. And so that's, that's getting some traction. Uh, there's another bill uh, that's up, uh, is it tomorrow or, tomorrow or Wednesday, that is called the Target Practice and Marksmanship Training Support Act. And that, that one also allows the states a little more flexibility with how they can use use their shooting range grant programs that are funded by Pittman Robertson. And part of the issue now is they have to come up with a 25% state or local match to build a range. And this bill would lower the local or state match requirement to 10%. And rather than that two-year window to obligate the money that exists now, they would extend it out to five. So uh, the states and the locals have to come up with a little bit less and have longer to do it. Part of the motivation behind that is you know, just with urbanization and uh, sprawl, there's fewer yep. places for people to shoot. Uh, there are more public land shooting conflicts uh, out there. And you know, there's, a, there's a threat of lost access if you like to shoot on public lands and you live anywhere near a metropolitan area of any size. And so the hope is that if this passes, it'll be a little easier to get some ranges on the ground. And build some of that stuff up, give people places to go, hopefully take care of some of those conflicts with other recreational users and adjacent landowners, things like that. 
That's good. So those are good things and things that, you know, a lot of people don't know. Most hunter safety courses are all state hunter safety initiatives paid for by Pippin Robertson. Is that right. how it works? Yeah, at least yep. partially. Partially yeah. at some yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, folks just don't know that. I didn't know it till recently. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's just little parts of that that I've written about and talked about, but having you guys on to be able to articulate how it gets from an idea or a good idea. And sometimes it's like a back end good idea. Like, oh, we could do this uh, in addition to all the other things we're doing on this bill or this package yeah, yeah. of legislation. So that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think you know some of the administrative stuff has been really solid too with the expansion of hunting in the National Wildlife Refuge system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of acres more places to go hunt now uh, since they've been trying to marry those refuge regulations up with the state management objectives and state regulations. Uh, it sounds like we're going to get be able to carry bows across national yeah. parks uh, real soon. Yep. Um, pretty excited about that. Uh, that was a that one was just a ridiculous oversight uh, by somebody um, seven or eight years ago when they passed that bill that allowed body to carry a firearm across right. a national park. <laughs> it's just not a bow, but not a bow, or but not carry a bow. Yeah. So yeah. you know if you're if you're wanting to go access BLM or Forest Service or even private land, but you got to cross a national park to get there. You could carry a loaded firearm but if you're a your gun bow. hunter, but, but not your bow. Hey, listen, Andy, bows are dangerous. You can't be carrying bows around. Somebody See? get cut. Like yeah. cut an artery. No. Some, somebody had to sit there and yeah. ride those guys and ride those guys and ride those yeah. guys and say, this is important enough that they're going to actually issue, you know, a, a, a whatever director's order or whatever it's going to take. To, no, it, took a, it took a regulatory change. Yeah, I mean, a regulatory, was, announce a regulatory change to move to move that yeah, needle and yeah. just take care of something that was an yeah, oversight yeah. was was pretty simple on things. So, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's important too. I mean, we, I think everyone in our society, but hunters too, there's these ideas that these large, you know, pieces of legislation or even legacy things that are, legacy legislations that have been going on like Pittman Robbins forever, they just come and go and they, they do their thing and nobody really has to work at it. But if you follow the money from, you know, when the manufacturer pays their excise tax to where to when it goes in a lot of cases to the IRS and the, you know, U S fish and wildlife, and then it goes to the States and the States have to do this. And if you follow that money, you just kind of get tired. Right. Yeah. No, it's oh awesome. man, it's hard to even read right. that stuff. So, um, I, you know, folks just understand how, how complicated, how good of a system it is. It's still complicated. Right. It still takes so much to get that money in the right place. And when it's there, to get it used in the right way. Yeah. That's well, right. Think about all those guys sitting in a room in the 1930s coming or, up with or, that. Yeah. Bastards. Yeah. Bastards. Smart. But no, smart. Without internet. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Yeah. Not even had Google. Some, had some vision. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, you know, I, I think our challenges are to look at those big, big opportunities for the 21st century and you know the little stuff is super important and we're always going to be uh diligent at going after that but some of these big things you know um another one we haven't talked about is the recovering america's uh wildlife act mm-hmm. which is uh an effort to try to get out in front of primarily the species of greatest concerns um because again the states just don't have the money anymore to go after all the all the the things that the, the wildlife agencies have to do now. And there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 or 12,000 potential candidate 
plant and animal species that that are could end up on the threatened or endangered species and i don't you know i would argue nobody wants to see that happen and if we can if we can do proactive uh management and and get out in front of this thing it'll not only be good for conservation it'll be a it'll be smart for america in terms of dollars and cents and so um, we've we've generated quite a bit of interest in this in this legislation in the House and the Senate. We were candidly a bit disappointed that we couldn't figure out a way to weave it into the House Resources uh, Committee markup last week, where they did the land and water conservation funding. They did. Uh, maintenance backlogs and park service and whatnot. There was a lot of money that was coming out, and we're all supportive of that. This would have rounded, in our mind, this would have really rounded that package up to get to this level, too. It just didn't make it yet. Um, We're still not giving up. We've still got, you know, um, some other thoughts and things in in mind to try to make it happen. But, you know, that would have been a shot in the arm to have that put into that mix and, uh, now those are the bits of disappointments, and when you're talking to the chairman, and he's like, "No, it's not going to make it," and you're just, you know, it's frustrating. But we're 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 still going to be there. Ninety four House co sponsors on the bill right now, and and bipartisan um, leadership on it in the Senate, and uh, it's just too important in terms of a big long term conservation yeah. fix for us to not be driving this thing as well. So, no, and I think. How would you describe me when I hear you talk about that? It, it, in my own mind, having some experience with the Sportsman's Caucus, codifies kind of how important that caucus really is because of what it does. But how would you just describe, you know, we told people in the beginning what it is, but how would you describe its importance and kind of its impact on the caucus itself on legislation like that? If you look at a lot of the legislation that's out there that we've discussed during this podcast and that you discuss on other podcasts, I would almost guarantee you that every one of those bills is is introduced and largely supported by members of the sportsman's caucus not true on everything but you know there's an awful lot of support from that it gives us the opportunity to be able to reach those guys in a very credible fashion we've been around in this town for nearly 30 years um the the ethos that we have here is do not do not ever get caught up playing partisan politics and do not ever get caught up giving somebody partial information or God forbid the wrong information. You know, you have to be CSF has to be the credible source that, that they can rely on that. We're going to give them the whole picture, tell them this is what's going on. You know, this is where it is. And, and I think that we've, we've earned that reputation because we're here. We see these guys, we see the staff members here. And, and so I, I think it's a, critically important function to have that that group of people if nothing else that they trust us to get good information to them yeah in a timely fashion because we can do it quickly here you know whether it's a electronic push of a button to get something up which you could do from anywhere but more importantly if you have to hustle two blocks up the up the street for a meeting with somebody that gets called at five o'clock at night when they're saying now what exactly do you want us to slide in here and (laughs) you have to be there to explain that you know the bipartisan thing strikes me as something that you know everybody can take to heart like that that you guys are focusing on making sure what you're doing is best for wildlife conservation hunters anglers before it's you know hey we really believe that you know we're pro extraction anti extraction don't start there you start with right um the core of what we do who we are you know the stuff hanging in your office uh, tells a lot about 
those things too. And I think that's important. But have you seen Jeff, because you've been around uh, many decades, have you seen more challenges in, in recent administrations, you know, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, have you seen more wild swings in partisan politics? Like I can think of the uh, Bears Ears National Monument as like the political football that they're just throwing back and forth. And I know from talking to some folks on the ground there that that just makes it harder to manage that that piece of land effectively if it keeps getting its designation changed because it's a you know political win or political loss or whatever. Have you seen that heightened in recent administrations or it has always been the challenge? No, I, I would say, and not just administrations, the Congress too. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I think it's it's been heightened. Uh, and I think part of it is just the electronic age. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you're constantly being able to just bombard your position, polarize, you know, people want to weigh in on stuff that they used to have to write a letter to your member of Congress and things like that. Now you can just punch something into your keyboard. And unfortunately it's just, it has created that, that image of, of polarizing and, and our stuff gets caught in it. Um, sometimes, you know, a bear's ears or something like that. Maybe it, it is in there anyway, but sometimes we just get caught. I mean, we've come so close to getting a sportsman's package done, you know, over the years and then found out at the very end, it's caught up in just purely partisan politics. They didn't want Obama to get a win, you know, and two years ago on his way out the door to sign a pro sportsman's bill. And that's what basically happened to it. And, and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that is frustrating and yeah, yeah, it's gotten worse and it's both sides. This is, there's, there's plenty of blame to go across both sides of the political aisle and, um, the stakes are high. The money's high um, for these kinds of things. And as I say, I, I attribute part of it just to the electronic new age, making it that much more polarizing. Yeah. I would imagine that in the grand scheme of like human communication, we're toddlers when it comes to using right. digital communication. Yeah. We don't know how to do it. So right. We don't know how to do it effectively. No. And mostly it's just garbage. Yeah. But, you know. It's not. It's good to know that there's there's a lot of wins happening in this building. There's a lot of wins happening in, uh, on Capitol Hill here for sportsmen. I mean, that's a huge thing. I think for people to understand, it's not. You know, if you get wrapped in a community of people or you're wrapped in an organization that wants to make it seem like the sky is falling, it's falling in parts, but it's not. All, it's not yeah. all falling. No, there's it's it's never things. never as good as you think it's going to be, and it's probably never as bad as you think yeah. it's going right. to be. Yeah, I think that goes back to that slippery slope argument. There's some organizations around on both sides of, of the ticket here that would say the sky is falling, gets members. The sky is falling, gets people to act. And that scares me sometimes to the, to the <laughs> point where, where um, I've seen it. Like I said, I've seen it on one side and I've seen it on the other. I've seen one side that says, I hate that organization. I'm like, well, you're doing the same thing. They are just for a different cause. Right. Um, so that's pretty scary to me. I mean, that's, you feel like that's, pretty damning on sometimes on the sportsman's community it's just you want to feel like you motivate people to act and your motivations can then become a little bit muddy doesn't help yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's for sure no, so I, it never I, helps no. you know and 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 that's just not our that's not our mo here um uh, that's just not our style here and and you know do we get frustrated when things come off the rails yeah you bet you know there's a lot of effort and time and energy and 
anticipation and when it doesn't go right it 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 can be pretty maddening but yeah. you know the wins are the wins are are equally as rewarding and if we can get those hunter numbers to turn the corner and start coming back up and we can keep makes making sure that we got clean water and you know good landscapes and good habitat management and get people outside you know i think that's that's i know personally that's what i get motivated by is to make sure that we can hand hand this off and you know i can feel like i've done my part to yeah. pass it on you know yeah so that's a huge part thank you for that you bet for sure i think before we end the podcast we should talk about hunting oh, right. that sounds good you want to do let's lay off policy for a minute um we're in <laughs> <laughs> jeff you were telling me about your your colorado adventures yep. So what are you most excited about about the fall? You're going to go hunt elk in Colorado? Yeah. In second rifle? In second rifle in southwestern Colorado and have been doing it for a number of years now with a small group of, of buddies. And, uh, you know, it's a high mountain camp. It's awesome. And just for, for a guy that, that spends most of his time hunting in the east just to be out in those mountains and, and the vistas and, yeah. you know, the, hear the elk and just they're just magnificent. The views are magnificent. And the buddies that i'm with it's a special time and we all look forward to it and it's a little dry out there so I'm, fingers crossed that maybe some moisture will generate itself and you'll take care of that for you yeah, yeah. there we go we redire- redirect some of this hurricane water <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll take it yeah. <laughs> yeah. andy what do you got on the dock i've got a third season elk hunt in western colorado and grand mesa lined up going with some buddies from high school that i haven't hunted in a while with and uh, got some old men going with us, so should be some good stories. Easy now there, buddy. Um, <laughs> even older than you. Okay. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So hopefully they don't shoot anything because I'm sure I'll have to carry it out if they do. That's what I was going to uh, say. But that's probably why I'm invited. So That's half the fun anymore yeah. for me. Yeah. I'm yeah. just falling off the mountain. Yeah. I've got I've got two little kids at home, so any, any time I can sneak out is, is a good time. Yeah. I know that feeling. Know that feeling. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you sitting down. Thanks for what you do. Um, thanks for fighting for sportsmen and and making sure we have a voice. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, thank, Ben. Thanks, Ben. I right, appreciate it. it. Thanks. That's it. That's all. Episode number twenty nine in the books. I really appreciate Jeff Crane and Andy Treharn hanging out. Uh, what they had to say, how they describe what they do for a living. Um, and really, most of all to me, bottom line on this thing is how many times they brought, brought up bipartisanship, how many times they, they brought up having to deal with partisan politics um, and having to work around them. And, and bravo, bravo to these guys for being the voices for bipartisanship, for working hard uh, on what I would consider some of these are the little things, the little details that will allow us to continue doing what we do outside and so don't forget about Andy and Jeff and CSF and what they do as you go and hunt and you go and fish and your monies are funneled back into conservation because they are important and so let's not forget them as we go out uh, this fall and go hunting uh, next time on the show we're going to catch up with Charles the Rabbit Man Rodney another resident of the D.C. area, somebody I've hunted with in the past. He is an amazing character. 
and his nickname is the Rabbit Man. So come on back for that next week. Till then, huntingcollective.com for articles, for video, for all the other stuff with this podcast. I want you to continue to go there and hang out. And soon enough, you'll find that there's going to be a new home for the Hunting Collective. We'll talk about that in the week to come very, very soon. Uh, And hopefully you'll be excited, as I am. So we will see you for episode 30 next Tuesday morning. Bye. Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that tom. So head on over to the meateater.com March 11 through 17 for Turkey Week.